What's the difference between leading a FTSE 100 and being the boss of a private equity firm? Gosh, um, look, I'd love being a public company chief exec. I, I, well, I probably shouldn't say this, but public company chief execs are a pretty miserable bunch, aren't they? I mean, are, are, they, <laughs> the whole, are there any in the room? <laughs> um, but they are. You see, they get invited to this... Um, it's a club called Public Company Chief Execs because um, you sort of end up at the same events and, and so on. And, and, and they're a real woe-is-me bunch. You know, how, how, you know, it's really terrible to get played a lottery win every year for doing something that you should love, have spent your entire life trying to get to the top of the pile to do, and every day <clears throat> people come in and tell you you're a fucking genius. Um, What's not to love about that? I just it kind of it was great. <laughs> it really was great. I how, how often do you get told you're a genius every day at the moment? Uh, less so, it's fair to say. <laughs> but but you know it is and and actually look you, you kind of it's such hard work if you do it well that you've got to love it. Otherwise, it's going to kill you. I mean, it's just relentless in terms of what goes. Particularly, the, you know, Sainsbury's is the most public of public companies, and you can never. You know, I get stopped in uh, airports. I, I've been chased across car parks by um, partners of colleagues who we've changed their rotor and they didn't... I mean, literally, several times as it happens. Um, I had this... Actually, completely aside, but I, I, just uh, uh, back in the same I was walking across um, the Queen Elizabeth Centre opposite the um, Parliament Square with my missus, and there's a fellow walking the other way, looked like he'd had a good lunch, and he walked past, and he took about five or six paces past, and he said, Justin King! And you sort of think, do I run? Do I stop? What do I do? And I turned around and he came and his hand went out and I thought, he's either throwing a punch or shaking my hand or go for... So I shook his hand. He said, what a privilege it is to meet you. He said, he said, he said you are. He said, you know, I have to tell you. He said, you are the leading retailer of your generation. So as my 10-year-old stepdaughter would say, puffed up with joy. And um, he paused and he said, actually, No. <laughs> <laughs> he said, that's Charles Wilson. He said, second best. With that, he turned and buggered off. <laughs> and my missus is almost having a heart attack laughing. It was so funny. So, look, you, you, so much goes with being a public company chief exec, which, if you don't love it, you shouldn't do it. Um, and actually, a lot of being a public company makes your job easier. Um, you know, my ambition was to ensure that we communicated well in the business. Well, there's no better way to communicate the business to send out an email to all of your colleagues saying, at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning, I'm going to be on the telly with Declan. And 130,000 of them tune in, and the BBC, for free, allows me to talk to 130,000 colleagues and about 5 million customers. I mean, it doesn't get better than that, does it? And yet, you know, most public company chief execs think that's a terrible thing to have to, to, to do. Most of my colleagues thought Declan was a personal mate because the only time they ever saw me was talking to Declan on the BBC four times a year. So, I, you know, I loved all of that. Um, but, so then what happens now? Well, what happens now is I get to do all of that but away from the public, public glare. Some of what uh, you do is easier away from the public glare. We have a very, very challenged um, healthcare business, Four Seasons. It's uh, the biggest... Um, residential care business in the UK. It's bankrupt with very difficult bankers. And, and frankly, um, it's in the interest of all of the, the, the constituencies of that business, particularly the residents and the employees, that what's happening that is largely taking place 
outside of the glare of publicity because it would only worry them actually, frankly, quite unnecessarily because the one thing that's not going to happen is old ladies getting turfed out onto the street. But if they read that about it every day in the Daily Mail, they probably think they would. So there are some businesses where you think, you know, kind of hallelujah, uh, just as well. Um, You know, on the other hand, if you look at... We had a number of energy businesses whose values were massively um, uh, uh, diminished by changes in government policy for supporting green energy. And because we're private equity and because we uh, generally don't like to have our head above the trench... Uh, that was a conversation that didn't take place, which probably should have done, actually, about the fact that the government single-handedly created an industry and then one, after, one July afternoon, George Osborne destroyed it with a stroke of a pen. Um, and so you look at that and think, do you know what, if that had been a public business, you would have a much different narrative about it. But broadly, if you were a consumer-facing business, I, I, you know, if you gave me the choice, I'd be public company every time. Right. I mean, private equity often doesn't help itself, does it? Because it, 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 it kind of works in these clandestine ways. You know, it's all very kind of clever financial manipulation. Now, you know, OK, well-read readers of the FT might understand the kind of benefits, but I don't think it's done a very good job selling itself to the broader public as a way of running businesses, has it? No, it hasn't. And, and the problem is, though, you see, private equity is not a homogeneous mass. And it's like, you know, who would speak for private equity? I'm not sure who would. And, of course, a lot of what private equity does, by its very nature, it gets into challenge situations. And therefore, private equity has more than its fair share of failures uh, than probably any other type of uh, capital, certainly noticeable failures. I mean, obviously, true venture capital angel investing has a lower success rate. But on the whole, no one notices because you're talking about startup and fledgling businesses, whereas private equity uh, and all of it in its different guises tends to take on the more uh, potentially more visible, more significant uh, sized and structural challenges. And, you know, private equity does not have at its core, um, uh, in many instances, the idea that businesses get better by serving the customer that they serve better. Um, uh, Many private equity (coughs) journeys are fundamentally about changing the financing structure of the business and creating wealth that way. Now, that's perfectly legitimate, except that sometimes that causes the business to do bad things for customers. But that always has long-term consequences. Um, and so there are many businesses today that are alive and thriving um, because they had a period of time in private equity ownership. But there are many businesses today that are facing the struggles that they are because they had a period of private equity ownership uh, too. You know, I... I, I um, I, I was quite a fan of Carluccio's. It's where I would take breakfast. Um, that I, I don't think that is a better business from a consumer point of view in private equity ownership than it was when it was owned by its founder and inspiration. And I think that's probably the reason it's in trouble because ultimately it's no longer differentiated. So uh, you know, part of why I took on the challenge that I did was because I believe that private equity is going to have to get better if it's to have a role going forward, operational transformation. You cannot just change the balance sheet. You have to change the P&L. And the P&L gets changed by doing a better operational performance, and that means serving consumers or customers better. And as it happens, because Terra Firma had been through its own challenging period, I was able to, you know, I had a kind of plural in one place. We had nine businesses, many of which were very challenged. either because they were challenged when we bought them or challenged because we'd made some missteps on our journey. And so for me, you know, what do I do? 
what I do at my core. I turn businesses around, that's what I've done all my career. Um, so I had nine, not quite nine broken businesses to, to go to work on. What's he like to work with? I mean, he's a, <laughs> he's a pretty enigmatic figure and yeah. you're probably close to him than most. Well, look, you've got to be a, um, a pretty strong individual to work with someone like Guy. You know, he's never short of an opinion. Um, he's always uh, right until he's not. Um, and he has had significantly more success than failure. I mean, one, one of um, the, the guys that I work with, he's very fond of saying, Guy is the only billionaire in the room. And um, the point that he's trying to make is if, if money is the way you keep count on success, clearly he's won that particular uh, uh, bragging right. Now, of course, money isn't the only way you keep track on success. And societally, we have a much broader view of what success looks like. I think we do. I hope we do. Um, but nonetheless, in that context, it's a very powerful voice. He's quixotic. You know, he, he's somebody who uh, every single day I have to step back and go, why does he think that? And sometimes I think, because he's nuts. And sometimes I think, that's a different way of thinking about things, which I'd never have thought about before. I genuinely, and this sounds like a trite line, I've learned more in the last three years than in any three years of my career since I first, you know, since I was, I don't know, 30 years old. It's do, do you fight, the two of you? Every single day, like, you kid, like little squabbling children, yeah. And who comes between the two of you? Then? Nobody, we just fight with each other. And fight. People generally keep out of the way because it's <laughs> not a great place to be when we're... We're doing that. Look, it's, it's the particular dynamic that works for us, uh, and, and therefore it works. I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily advocate it. H- having said that, you know, Alan and Archie, uh, Archie Norman, Alan Layton, as they were famously a, a, a powerful and successful combination, and that they squabbled like children the whole time. It wasn't generally known. And, and one story I have told, but, you know, one day we had a planned office, and Alan and Archie used to sit in this area sort of behind... There was a boardroom table was there, and they would sit there with their PAs. And um, I, and I, I, I went. I knew there was a problem because Alan had turned his desk around, and he was facing out the window, not towards where Archie was. So, and I sat down and ch- chatted to, to Alan about something I don't remember what. And as I left, he said, "Oh, just as you go past Archie's desk, could you tell Archie?" You know. And so oh, that's a bit strange. So I wandered off and I went to Archie. And I said, oh, Alan just wanted me to tell... And Archie went, well, you can tell Alan. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. No, I am not getting in the middle of that. And they literally had got to the point where they weren't prepared to talk to each other. But it worked. It worked for them. And it works for me and Guy. So we, we touched on big tech. You've got some interesting ideas about the unfairness of the way in which they compete... I mean, tell us about your ideas about you want to increase VAT and cut business rates. You're not going to get elected on that ticket, Justin. Yeah, I know, I know. Look, well, uh, so there's so much in that question. I I touched on it earlier. I think that one of the really important things as we see the world change as rapidly as we are now is that, you know, there is a, a, a desire to believe in if you like, the idea of paradigm change. But I don't, I don't think there is. You know, fun- fundamentally, anti-competitive behaviour is anti-competitive behaviour. And so, you know, if Ford announced tomorrow they were buying Tesla and they were going to shut it down, we'd think that was a pretty scandalous thing to allow Ford to do, wouldn't we? And we wouldn't allow it to happen, I don't think, legislative. Google proudly tell you that 90% of the businesses they've bought have failed within a year. 
Sounds like the same thing to me. Now, they would say, no, 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 what we do is we buy these businesses, we fast-track them to both success and failure. They were always going to fail. We just get there quicker, right? Yeah, and I was born yesterday. You know, this is a business that is using the power of its balance sheet to hoover up. It's a Herod strategy, strangle babies at birth. Now, it may well be that there are many things in existence today that would not have become successful without their patronage and support. I don't dispute that either. But there must be a better way of achieving that than allowing one corporation to create monopoly power. I said earlier about Uber, you know, they're unabashed and most of, of these types of companies attempting to own a piece of turf. Their valuations can only be justified by an expectation on the part of shareholders that they have pricing power and margin power at some point in time. Otherwise, their valuations are ludicrous. They're, they only exist because of that belief. Meanwhile, a whole bunch of them pretend they aren't what they aren't. So, you know, the, the word that should be banned from this narrative is platform. You know, why is the word platform used? Because they're pretending they're not a mean intermediary. I refer you to my earlier comments about retailers. You know, Dara resolutely, at this speech a couple of weeks ago, said that, in essence, the behaviour of his drivers, because they're not his drivers, they're driver partners, apparently, that's the official line, was not his responsibility. It was very clear that it's not his responsibility. I kind of struggle with that. Now, when you come to the issues of unfair competition, and particularly the issues of tax, um, ultimately, the issue is that we have a tax system that has, is no longer relevant to today's world. In particular, business rates. You know, property was a good proxy for business activity when business rates was invented whenever they were hundreds of years ago. It isn't a good proxy for business activity. Tax should take no part in the competitive dynamic. If a business wins because it's a better, more efficient business model, that's what should happen. That's what should happen. It's natural selection, it's competition, it's capitalism. We're having a big debate in this country today, and have been for a number of years, about the productivity conundrum. Well, why is this country? Well, at its core, I would argue that we now have a vast number of highly unproductive jobs which are subsidised by the taxpayer. That's what the gig economy is. You know, we call it the gig economy because it sounds funky in some ways. It's piecework. That's what it is. It's piecework. You get paid when you're working and you don't when you do. That's very productive for the corporation, but it's not productive for wider society, I would suggest. I have no idea whether Uber is more efficient than a black cab with Halo. No idea at all. But I'd hazard a reasonable guess that a black cab with Halo has a passenger in it for a higher percentage of the miles that it's being driven than an Uber car. I think that's pretty likely. So. Evidentially, I'm not sure that they have a winning and more efficient business model, but they are able to achieve that by virtue of the fact that they have disintermediated the legislature. They've disintermediated on tax by pretending their drivers are not their employees. They've disintermediated it on safety by, you know, every, it's long been accepted that the provide, provision of um, taxi services should be legislated in some way, largely by local councils, in terms of safety of the vehicles, are they insured, are the drivers properly trained, CRB checked and so on. That all has a cost, which we pay as consumers in the cost of a black cab fare. Um, 
Uber allows us to disintermediate that. And maybe we're happy to sit in the back of a car that doesn't know where it's going if the sat-lab's not working. I'm not. You know, I'm quite happy, but I'm fortunate that that's a choice I can make. For many people, it isn't a choice available to them because of cost. Yeah. So I fundamentally believe the tax system has to get out of the competitive dynamic and then the best and most efficient business models win on the basis that they're the best and most efficient business okay. models. And quickly then, you're talking about gig economy and jobs. Tell us your Osborne and minimum wage story that you related to me in the summer. God, I can't remember. Which one was it? Well, I have a repertoire. <laughs> I mean, you weren't altogether in favour, were you, of what, no, 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 of no. what he... Well, no. I mean, look, I, I, I think that the problem... I mean, clearly, when you start calling something the you know, national living wage, you're, you're playing politics. When you say, you know, living wage for what? Um, is it living wage for um, a single-parent family with four kids? Is it living wage for a single person living with their mum? Is it living wage for a you know, classic family unit of mum, dad and a couple of kids? Is it living wage where it, that includes um, the cost of my housing and what part of the country? I mean, you can't have a national living wage with the different costs of housing. I mean, it's, kind of, it's a ludicrous political construct which can only mean that you are enforcing a cost of labour which is economically not justified in large parts of the country. And the people that have to, uh, ultimately will suffer most from that are the people who it's intended to help. Because in the end, if you force a flat rate of wages throughout the country, then the parts of the country that are less economic to do business in will do less business in. Because why would you start a factory in South Wales, where unemployment is still a feature of our lives in the way that a lot of the country is not, if you've got to pay exactly the same for all of your costs as if you started it in Birmingham much closer to where most of your customers might be. So it seems to me to be something which ultimately causes harm. And uh, whilst, of course, there should be a minimum wage, we had a low-wage commission which functioned incredibly well for 20 years, balancing the idea that through the waterbed effect you would create great societal benefit and avoid exploitation, which is a legitimate objective too, but never at a level that it had the potential to harm the economy. And the government, in its own announcement of the first national, so-called national living wage, said they thought it would destroy 60,000 jobs. I mean, imagine any other government announcement saying we're going to do something to destroy 60,000 jobs. So they knew it was being set at a level that the economy at that time could not sustain. That seems to me to be sort of craven politics. And, and the idea that it takes, there is also this idea that if you force, you force em, employers are exploiting the benefit system to pay people uh, lower wages. Well, it, it's, firstly, it's back to my earlier point. How can employers, it's a societal decision, how we choose to, dis, to support <coughs> the family decisions that people take. You, you know... You, if, if it wasn't the case, then we should set the wage at a level that someone with 17 children working 27 hours a week can survive at. So it, it, it's a societal decision, and that's what the benefits system is there for. Businesses can't be held to account for those societal decisions, it seems to me. Um, ultimately, we, businesses create wealth and societal benefit 
provided the economics of doing business make sense. And none of this is in the vacuum in terms of um, the world. If we're going to be this brave new manufacturing economy, you know, I put that all in quotation marks, I guess, then we certainly won't do that with a minimum wage completely out of step with all the countries that we apparently intend to, to compete with. Finally then, Justin, we've got to finish with the wretched B word, which we've avoided studiously all evening, Brexit. How do you think it's going to pan out over the next six to 12 months? Well, look, I, I, I don't know. And um, if I thought I did, I probably should place a bet on it because um, I think it's incredibly unknown. But I think that is the point. I mean, you know, here we are, uh, less than six months from when it's supposed to happen, and we still don't know. I mean, isn't that kind of the point? Whether you're a Brexiteer or a Remainer, it's pretty ludicrous. Um, and uh, I was at an event earlier today, and there was a lady, she's a florist. I thought she captured it utterly brilliantly. She said, I had a phone call uh, to ask me to quote on a wedding in April. And she said, I can't quote. Because she said, I have no idea what my costs and what my supply chain is going to be come the 20th of April, 20th of March next year. And I thought, wow, that's kind of it in a nutshell. So, um, you know, the government talks about it being 95% negotiated. Uh, I just think that's risible nonsense. Um, we may have 95% of how we are going to describe the kicking of the can down the road negotiated, but we haven't agreed 95% of what it will be when it eventually happens. Well, clearly we haven't. So, you know, I'm a supporter of a so-called people's vote. I would prefer that we just called it a referendum because that's what it is. And for no other reason than I think that a vote has taken place on a obviously false premise, a an asymmetry of knowledge, um, a belief that we understood what being in Europe looked like, what Remain therefore meant, and a bunch of stuff, which wherever you are on, on Brexit Remain, a bunch of stuff which clearly was not true um, on both sides of the debate. So why not have a vote based on the best possible uh, deal that the government believes that they can do versus the possibility of still staying? And if the population of the UK, knowing what Brexit looks like, still want to leave, we'll leave. But we didn't vote with any with <coughs> symmetry of knowledge, I would uh, suggest. And, I, you know, it's a false... I kind of recognise it for what it is. I was trained as a salesman, essentially. And one of the first things you're taught is the alternative clothes. Would you, can I put you down for five of them, or would you prefer ten? And it is amazingly how, how frequent, infrequently people say, well, I just don't want any, actually. Thank you very much. And they say, oh, I'll have, I'll have five now. Um, and we're currently being presented with the biggest alternative clothes in the history of this country. You can have no deal or a shitty deal. Now, it seems to me we all agree no deal kind of doesn't count because we've all seen the government's preparation for no deal. And, and then very few, even the most ardent Brexiteers, don't think no deal looks like a pretty place for the country. There's, oh, it'll only be 20 miles of lorries queuing <coughs> in Kent. Or as Dominic Raab, the Brexit minister, actually said on the record today, I didn't realise how important Dover Calais was. I mean, you, you literally couldn't. You literally couldn't. And, and by the way, that was in a pre-prepared speech. You know, it wasn't a kind of off-the-cuff uh, comment. So it seems to me that um, uh, we are coming close to having something that we can describe as a possible 
outcome. And at that point, we should then have a proper debate about whether remain or leave on the terms available to us is the right decision. It's funny you describe it as an asymmetry because actually I'm not sure it was because the implication of that is that the pro-Brexit people actually knew what it would involve, but I don't think even most of them did. It, no, 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 that's I mean, what I mean by the asymmetry. I mean, that, that suggests that it's sort of like a confidence trick that, that the other side in the bargain know what, what, what the, what's going to happen further down the road, but they didn't, did they? Well, no, but nor could we, because, you know, this idea that, you know, somehow the fact that a, a horrible deal might be hoving into view is the fault of the Europeans. Last time I looked, they didn't vote for it. You know, we did. It's like, you know, you go and knock on, so you see a house you like in a street and you go and knock on the door and say, I'd like to buy a house for 100 grand. And they say, well, right, well, I'm not, it's not for sale, but if you'd like to give me a quarter of a million quid, I'm a seller. And you say, well, how about 110? And you say, no, no, look, I'm not a seller of my house. If you'd like to give me a quarter of a million quid, 120? He's like, no, they don't. Why on earth should they do a deal? They don't want to do a deal. They think it's a really bad thing for them and for us. I don't care, frankly, whether they think it's a bad thing for us or not. And they don't want to do a deal. So, of course, we were going to do a crappy deal because we had a counterparty that didn't want to join in. I mean, and anybody that pretended that they would, it's a ludicrous construct. Of course, they're not going to join in because it's asymmetric in terms of the maths. You know, even the, even the Irish economy, which is the most dependent economy in Europe on the UK, is not as dependent on the UK as the UK is in aggregate dependent on the 27 countries. So that is by definition an asymmetric negotiation. Justin, as I knew, you've been terrific. Um, you know, you've done it for an hour and a half without drawing breath. And... You haven't said a word that you didn't believe, um, as you always, you know, you're, you're straight um, and honest. So thank you very thank much you. for coming on. To- <laughs> I'm Matthew Guiver, and you've been listening to a Jericho Chambers podcast. Thank you for listening.